heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. I've come to find that documents are written for many different reasons. Some stories entertain us. Some manuals describe the minutia of the steps and the details of a machine or of a process. Documentaries describe a collection of facts that are ordered in a way to inform. Some essays are written to persuade. Some approach Genesis expecting an explanation of metaphysics, geology, or cultural anthropology, or philosophy. Some see these words that are in front of us as a summary of highlights of millions or billions of years. Some read these words and conclude that the earth is flat. Some ask this book to answer the question about life on other planets. But these readers are placing a burden on the text that it was never meant to bear. That is not the reason that this text was written. In my devotional readings this week, I was in the end of John's Gospel where John declares in chapter 10, verses 30 and 31, that he doesn't describe everything that Jesus did. But the things that he did, right, are sufficient to make belief reasonable. And in the same way, Genesis does not describe everything that God does, but what it does tell is sufficient to make our belief reasonable. Now, I will admit to you right now that my approach to the purpose and the meaning of the Hebrew Scriptures is in the th same thought flow as St. Anselm of Canterbury, who wrote nearly a thousand years ago. He wrote in Latin, and he wrote, Credo ut intelligam. Let me translate that for you. That's Latin for, I believe so that I may understand. Anselm's Creed is a restatement of St. Augustine, who made a statement 700 years before that. He also wrote in foreign languages, and he wrote Fides Quarens Intellectum, which is Latin for faith seeking understanding or intelligence. And it stands in opposition to the idea of intelligo ut credam, which means, I think so that I may believe. So let me put it right out there in front. Because I believe, I read the scriptures so that I will understand. 
rather than reading the scriptures so that I will come to a cognitive understanding so that I can believe. See, I am just so, I am not so naive as to believe that if an intelligent person would just read Genesis, that he or she would be forced to adopt my positions. I, I admit, I approach this book as someone who already believes. I believe there is a good and a personal God who supersedes time and matter, who has a plan for creation and humanity. And from that bias, I believe God has revealed himself as the only person who was present before time. And as the only person who was present before time, he is the only person who is qualified to describe what happened when time began. I admit before we begin to study in Genesis that I believe in a historical Adam. That there was one man who was a historical being named Adam, who had one wife named Eve. I also confess, just so you have my bias on the table, I believe in six literal days of creation. But as I consider that as kind of my overarching framework, we now begin to look at the individual words here. Who wrote this? How did it come to be? Well, if Moses authored Genesis, as most people believe, who was his audience? And, and why was this text needed? If Moses was rescued from the Nile somewhere around 1526 B.C., raised by Pharaoh's daughter, kills an Egyptian, flees to the wilderness, and then encounters the burning bush somewhere around 1276 B.C., yet my perspective flows from the Jewish numbering of years, and I believe that the events of today's text actually happened around 4140 B.C., so if they happened 4,000 B.C., Moses isn't writing till 1,300 B.C. What happened over those 2,600 years of humanity to create a curiosity about the origin and the purpose of man? Sometime between the 2nd and 3rd millennium B.C., the Babylonians wrote a creation story. And they give credit to their gods and how everything began. Somewhere around 2700 B.C., the Egyptians wrote a creation account, giving credit to their god, the god of Ra. And I'm convinced that Moses actually penned this when they were wandering in the wilderness. The murmuring Israelites had been exposed to Babylonian and Egyptian theories, but they found themselves in the desert, and their talks around the campfire began to ask, how did we get here? Who is behind it all? Where are we going? 
And these are questions that continue to plague humanity today. Is there anyone behind it all? How did we get here and where are we going? Well, I believe that since neither Moses nor any of his audience was there on day one, God reveals himself by instructing Moses through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Moses wasn't there, but God was there. And so God told Moses what to write. And we are going to discover God's answers to these three questions. How did we get here? Who is behind it all? And where are we going? Between now and Memorial Day in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. The first question is answered in the first three words. Three words in Hebrew, four words in English. Reshit Elohim Barah. Beginning created God. To the question, who is behind it all? God tells Moses to write that the Bible is not primarily a man-centered tale. It begins with, it ends with, and it revolves around God. In the beginning, before light even existed, God. God was already there before anything came to being that has come to being. Because I believe this is actually telling us to the question who is behind it all, God's presence is preeminent. Before anything else happened, God's presence already permeated everything. People approach this verse in front of us and they say, at the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of time as a sequence of events. The beginning of matter, which exists in gas, in vapor, in liquid, in solid, as we know it. At the beginning of time and space and matter, as we understand it, God was already there. Books and movies like to appeal to being lost in time or the land before time. But those measure time as it relates only to humanity. But a plain reading of Genesis chapter 1 indicates that time and space existed before man and that God existed before time or space. This is why when God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, Moses says, who are you? He says, I am. God does not say, I was or I will be. He is, because God exists outside of time and space. He is permanent. He is eternal. Not only the God who spoke to Moses, but also in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 14, verse 27. Peter looks at Jesus walking on the waters in the midst of a storm. And Jesus said, I am. Be not afraid. The Greek that Jesus uses, ego emi, 
is normally translated in our Bibles as it is I. It is I, ego and me. It's exactly what God said, I am. Because at the beginning of everything, he already was. Now, I, I'm, I'm going to kind of get into the weeds a little bit of details that you may think, who would ever ask anything like that? You're, you're, you're just showing off, preacher. But the reality is, is if you engage people of a, of a, of a non-religious mindset... If cults come to your door, they will raise up some of these questions. And I want you to be equipped with answers for you to have the confidence that our faith is reasonable. It's not just a fairy tale. And one of the things that you will hear other religions say is, you know, you say that Jesus is God and that they are one, but why does the Bible say in the beginning, God's, plural, created the heaven. Why do you say there's one God when your, your very own book uses the plural? Well, singular for the word is God. Plural is Elohim, just as we would add an S or sometimes an ES at the end of a word to make it plural. In Hebrew, they add an I-M, im. So Elo becomes Elohim. And so this actually means if El is the one God, the plural gods is Elohim. And this is in the beginning, gods created. Now wait a sec, preacher. Are you preaching heresy to us? Are you saying that there's more gods? See, in, in the language that God gave to Moses to write this down, in Hebrew, plural can either mean quantity or quality. Elohim can either mean gods with a small g or God with a capital G, the one high God. It's called the plural of majesty in Hebrew language. If, there's, if you say something plural, there's either lots of them or this is the one that's on top of all the rest. And that's the word that is used. It's a plural of majesty that it is the one God who created the heavens and the earth. In response to all the campfire stories about the other small g gods, Moses cuts to the chase right off the bat by clarifying, I am referring to the big G God, the true top God. Because where it says in the beginning, God plural of majesty, created, the verb create is in the singular. And so we know that it's the one great God rather than the many gods. Why did God create? Many of us believe that God created because he needed something to love or that he needed to be loved and worshipped. The problem with that is God needs nothing. And before light even existed, before energy was spoken into being, God had perfect fellowship. John chapter 17, verses 5 and 24, Jesus says, Glorify me now with the glory that I had before the creation. 
Because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three persons in one God had perfect fellowship, perfect love, perfect unity. Father was able to give and receive love from Son and Holy Spirit. And Son was able to give and receive love from um, Father and Spirit. And Spirit was able to receive love from Father and Son. You know, the Bible for us is an unfolding drama. And later passages enlighten truths that were already present, even if they weren't stated. You read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. This does not mention Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it does mention a plural of majesty and a singular God who created. I, I, I think in uninformed, blank slate reading of Genesis 1-1 would conclude that there is some sense in which God is plural, either in number or majesty, yet he's singular. But the members of that plurality are not explicit. They're not given names at this point. You know, we need to read these words from the posture of the Israelites in the wilderness. When Moses first wrote these words to answer the questions of the, Mos- uh, of the Israelites around the campfire, what was their frame of mind? How would, they have, how would they read this? And then we read the rest of the story. And we read how Jesus came to earth, how Jesus claimed to be I am, how Jesus claimed that he had glory with the Father before creation. And so we take our post-resurrection understanding with Christ as the pinnacle of God's revelation, and then we look back at the story as it is told. So we see it both historically and also with Christ as the center. Uh, I like the mental picture of walking into a fully furnished but darkened room with a flashlight. All the furnishings are in place. But if you're in the dark room and you shine your flashlight around, you catch glimpses of many pieces of furniture in the room. Then you find the light switch. The overhead light illuminates the space and you can see the bigger picture of the location, the spacing, the flow of the room. When we stand in the doorway as the Israelites and we shine our flashlight into the darkness of Genesis 1, we see the sofa. So we know the room is not empty, but there's a sofa there. And then we begin to walk around with our flashlight and we begin to get more light. And we see that same sofa from many different angles. We can count that there are three cushions in the sofa. We observe that it is made of leather. We notice the excellent double stitching that holds the pieces together. At first, all we see is there's a sofa in the middle of the room. And we read the rest of the Bible and we start to fill in the gaps. And as we read the rest of the Bible, we fill in the gaps. So we go back and look. At the beginning of time, God was. The triune God was. The loving God was. The good God was. 
I realize that I've already spent a lot of time on individual words. And if it makes you feel better, I'm over halfway through my notes. But if the first 11 chapters of Genesis cover some 2,000 years, yet God slows down to give us two chapters on just six days, it's good for us to slow down as well. And when we slow down to consider God's existence before earth, we notice that God's grace resolves chaos and emptiness into a world that was without form and void, God speaks something good out of the mess. Verses 1 and 2 are actually one continuous thought for us. And, and again, I'm about to get into the weeds, but I think a, a light bulb is going to dawn so that when a cult member tries to persuade you that there is somehow billions of years between verses 1 and 2, you can say, no, because it doesn't have Vav consecutive. I'm sure all of you are going to remember Vav consecutive. I'll ask you in 30 minutes, a what, a woo? This is the way the Hebrew scriptures, verses 1 through 5, look as they are written in front of us today. And the red, the green, and the blue, someone stole my pointer. Oh, I'm disappointed. The red, the green, and the blue are the verbs. Now you'll notice at the beginning of verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5, because Hebrew goes right to left, so you think you're looking at the end of the sentence when you're looking at the beginning. Notice the very first letter of the blue words. It looks like a backward seven with a short stump. That is the letter Vav. It's a conjunction that appears over 50,000 times in the Old Testament. And it simply means, and then. As a matter of fact, if you would look at your English Bible, look down through Genesis chapter 1 and see how many verses begin with the word and. It's because it has this Vav, which is a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And, and, and it, it simply means, and then. And so verse 3 begins, and then God. And verse 4 says, and then God. And verse 5 says, and then God. But there's no and then at the beginning of verse 2. Because verse 1 and verse 2 fit together. It's not verse 1 happened and then verse 2. Verse 1 happened and verse 2 is a clarification of what happened in verse 1. So you would say, on this day, the day that was dark and formless and void. So 1 and 2 are, are meant to fit together grammatically, and so now you've had your Hebrew lesson. And if anyone tries to tell you that there's a gap between Genesis 1 and 2, you can say, no, the grammar of Hebrew does not support that claim. But the rest of the book has and then, and then, and then, and then. So we know that Moses knew how to write and then, 
But he intentionally leaves out and then at the beginning of verse 2. You know, it's, it's a mistake for us to somehow insert millions of years between these two verses simply to make room for the dinosaurs. I don't deny that dinosaur fossils have been unearthed. I just deny, based on my understanding of Scripture, that dinosaurs should be dated before days five and six of creation. I believe God created dinosaurs. And they didn't have to happen millions and billions of years ago, somehow between verses 1 and 2, because verses 1 and 2 are meant to fit together. Okay, Hebrew lesson number two. Tohu vabohu. Tohu vabohu. It has a ring to it that we don't have in English. When we say without shape and void, there's no rhyme. Without shape, grammatically, doesn't seem to mean void. But in the language that he was written, remember this is an auditory language. People couldn't read, and so they would tell stories. And so it was told with mnemonic voices like this, like rhymes, so that people could remember it. Jesus says, or or God says to Moses, and Moses records for us, at the beginning, things were tohu vabohu. Now we would use the words null and void. Two words that seem to be the same but there's just a little bit of difference. And by saying two words, null and void, we get the idea, it's really useless. And that's the idea of tohu vabohu. He says it's without form, it is void, it's empty. He's simply saying something in a way that we can remember that before the first day, when God was, our earth was empty and meaningless. Void. Shapeless. You know, I, 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 I hate to hear it, but um, I, I hear people talk about driving over Kansas and saying it's a vast wasteland. And whenever I hear somebody accuse Kansas of being a vast wasteland, I have to ask, have you ever driven through central Illinois? <laughs> have you ever driven through northwest Texas? Sorry, Frank. Or have you ever driven through Arizona? Kansas is beautiful compared to those vast wastelands. But it's that idea of a vast wasteland that God is saying here. Before he spoke light into existence, this was a wasteland. Null and void. Tohu vabohu. Later on in Isaiah 34 and in Jeremiah chapter 4, the pairing of these words, tohu vabohu, it's used to indicate judgment. After there is judgment, after there is punishment, things become tohu vabohu. And so it's a picture of meaningless and emptiness, and we see that later. But there's nothing that indicates in verses 1 or 2 that judgment or punishment is the situation. Simply that lie that earth without God is barren, a wasteland. As man has been able to send back pictures from the moon and from Mars, I see uninhabitable, barren, 
void. This is life apart from God's gracious intervention. And that was earth before God intervened. I hear a lot of people ask, why would God send anyone to hell? And that's because people want to invent a God of their own imagination. The God that I imagine would not send anyone to hell. Let me give you a hint. God doesn't send anyone to hell. Hell is our existence without God's gracious intervention. Hell is an absence of God. And it is our rebellion and our choice that sends us into that godless existence. God doesn't send people to hell. Sin and rebellion, wanting to do life apart from God, causes people to go to a place that is apart from God. But before God spoke, earth was just as useless to plants, animals, and humans are to other planets. But God's word reveals possibilities. When things are worthless and God is not present, God steps in and God's word offers possibilities. You notice, if you would count in Genesis chapter 1, how many times we read the phrase, God said... Let me give you a hint. Ten times. And where else does God speak ten times? The Ten Commandments. And so God speaking into creation is a foreshadowing of God speaking into the human experience. God's word reveals the possibilities that exist. It reveals all sorts of possibilities, such as Genesis begins to unroll the possibilities that a kind and gracious God introduces to a hopeless and useless circumstance. God brings hope into something that is useless. To darkness, he introduces light. To the abyss, he introduces dry land. To the land and the seas, he introduces animals and mankind. To mankind, he introduces fellowship and communion. To our rebellion, he introduces the proto-evangel, the promise of an heir who will crush the head of the enemy. To our wickedness, God introduces restoration. To our vanity, He introduces worship and purpose. To sin, God introduces forgiveness. To our death, He introduces resurrection. And to evil, He introduces a new heaven and a new earth. God's Word brings possibilities into our useless, godless existence. Some cosmic bang or spontaneous collision of protons never contains the positive possibilities that come from the mind of God. Because God's plan is perfect. That's what I see at the very end of verse 5. And there was evening and there was morning. I see a progression, one thing and then the next. And when I see one thing and then the next, I see a plan 
at work. And as God plans what's going to happen, we find out that his plan is perfect. We see the sequence of of moments. One has to happen before the other can happen. And if one happens first and then the other happens next, there's a sequence. There's a plan. One situation existed and then another came to be. And this progression was called a day. If there was a sequence of events, that sequence is either random or it is planned. If there is a sequence, then entropy says it is either getting better or it is getting worse or it's becoming different in some way. Because if we look at randomness, it requires eons of time. Let me drop one little note here, a, a side note. So now I've got your attention. This isn't part of the message, it's just kind of a side piece. Now let's see if this picks up any traction. One of our members suggested that a group trip to the Creation Museum and ARC exhibit when school lets out would really enhance this sermon series. I don't know a single person who's ever been disappointed that they took that trip to creation in ark. So you talk it up among each other. Let's see if something begins to move. Let's see if my formless idea becomes a concrete plan. Because random requires eons, but God's intelligent design follows a plan that makes perfect sense. You know, there are those who claim, I admit there are people who claim that the change that happens within the world is random. But I observe differently. Because you have heard it said, all that is required for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. In order to move towards something good, somebody has to introduce good energy, good ideas, good thoughts, good actions. And I believe that it is because forward energy demands input. And for us to become any better than we were before requires God's input. And it's intentional. And it's a plan that God has put in place. God spoke energy, let there be light, into formless and void. Why? Because He is good. Because God is great, and because He is good, He introduced light energy into the earth. God promises the seed of woman because He is great. God is good. God promises atonement and forgiveness because His plan is great and it is good. God offers salvation because his plan is great and it is. And our world only has hope because his plan is great and. Indeed, we do have a God who is a good God, who has a great and a good plan because he speaks positive and possibilities where a non-God existence is null and void. To all of us who have found that our best intentions and our best efforts are without form, our best intentions and our best actions are void, empty, 
Today is the day that you can repent of sin and follow Christ. Today can be your day to say no to your godless existence and yes to the good and perfect plan of God for you. Solely relying upon our human effort and begin to trust in the plan and the goodness of a God who graciously offers you salvation. In a moment, our final song is a redo of two of the songs that we sang a little bit earlier in the service. And as we sing together, if you would like to place your trust in God's good and perfect plan, I invite you to come to the front. Let me know of your desire, and I will partner you with someone of your same gender who can show you from God's Word how you can know that your life is part of God's plan, a good, a great, a perfect plan for your life. If that's you, you come. If you're already trusting in God's good and perfect plan, let's tell Him how good, how great, how perfect He is. Let's stand together as we sing. If the Holy Spirit is prompting you, you come.